Hey there, welcome to the Rim Church Podcast. We're so glad you found us. The Rim Church is based in San Antonio, Texas, and we believe in loving Jesus, building family, and changing the world. Wherever you find yourself today, we trust that it is not by accident that you're listening to this message, and we believe that God has something to speak to you right where you are. For more information on what we're all about, go ahead and visit us at therim.church or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We hope you enjoy the message. Good morning. You can go ahead and grab a seat Uh, today. Grateful you made it out. You survived the light monsoon we had in San Antonio this morning. If we ever have monsoons in San Antonio, what a a great day to be at church. Uh, My name is Brad Hobbs. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'd love to be able to hang out and at least put a face for the name uh, after their gathering today. Um, Today is kind of a special day because uh, last September, like September of 2022, uh, we as a church family began a series uh, walking through the book of John. And uh, holidays came, we kind of took some hiatus uh, between December and February, uh, but we've been wrapping up the last half of John and today is our last week. So we, we, are, we are in John chapter 21 today. So like if you feel a sense of accomplishment, whether you've jumped in or not, like even if you came two weeks ago, you can say, man, we've read through a whole book of the Bible uh, since last September and just like mark that off on your, your checklist. But the, the series title just kind of give you a little framework that we kind of captured over this past spring was living beauty in a broken world. Like living beauty in a broken world, what does it actually mean? Because sometimes we look at following Jesus and there's this idea that things are just going to be beautiful and wonderful. And when we look over the past week, there's a lot of brokenness in my, my own life, not to mention just the brokenness we see around us. So how do we actually live out a beautiful life and this great story that sometimes we, we paint in a world of just heartache and just continuing to mess up. And so we, we've been walking through that. Today, we're just going to kind of put an exclamation point uh, on our series. But as I started to look, uh, for kind of doing some research for our time together in John chapter 21, I uh, started to look at where, where are the most beautiful places in the world? Like, we're, not just like Hawaii, like uh, the Bahamas or Fiji, but like what museums contain the most beautiful works of art in the world? And since they've been, apparently there is a group that ranks museums and their beauty. And so you have the Tate Modern in London. You've got uh, the Museum of Modern Art in New York. But the one that has always taken the number one seat is a museum called the Louvre. All right? Any, anybody been to Paris and been to the Louvre? Yeah, a few, few of you, right? So the Louvre is, is massive. It's a massive mall, inverted pyramid. Any of you who like watched movies like in the early 2000s, the Da Vinci Code had a big, big scene filmed there. But the Louvre has like 350,000 works of art, like 10 million people visit a year, but really they only go to see like three things, all right? In one room, like 350,000, just imagine you walk into the Louvre with 100,000 of your closest friends from around the world, uh, some of them who love, uh, like have no respect for space, uh, some who have different customs and cultures, and so it smells wonderful. And so you walk all the way through this, the Louvre to get to one primary room, all right? In one primary room you walk in, it's, it's literally about the size of this gym. On this wall, 
there are now 50,000 people because half the people got lost finding themselves to this room. And the other 50,000 are cramming in and they're looking at a 20 by 30 poster. It was what it looks like on the wall. It's, it's the Mona Lisa, right? The only reason you go to the Louvre is to see the Mona Lisa. And so everybody's getting their picture of the Mona Lisa. And then on this side of the room is a 20 by 30 foot painting that some monks uh, commissioned called the, the, wedding, or, uh, the Wedding Feast at Galilee. It's a massive picture of Jesus and the disciples. Remember like the first miracle, he turns water into wine. We looked at that earlier in his text. And it's, it's this beautiful space. And, and people go, well, everybody goes to the Louvre and they equate it as being the most beautiful mu- museum in the world. It's got these two paintings. Really, everybody sees the Mona Lisa, the Venus de Milo, which if you're an, not an art person, uh, that's an old monument that has no arms because it got lost in antiquity. And so everybody goes and takes this picture of, of this statue of a woman. Uh, and then the winged victory, Nike, like Nike got the name from the winged victory. The Nike uh, is there in the, the Louvre. But at the bottom of all of these like rankings for the Louvre, Um, and all the museums, there's this kind of asterisk. And the asterisk says this. This is not a scientific study of the most beautiful museums in the world. In fact, verbatim, our study reflects people's familiarity with the art. Meaning, the more familiar we are with certain pieces of art, the more likely we are to like them. And I begin to think about this aspect, that the more familiar we become with beautiful things, the more we're able to see it and experience it. The more we become familiar with what it means to live a beautiful life in the middle of a broken world, the more we are able to step into it. And so the book of John is this 21 chapters of, of one of Jesus' closest friends. He was in the inner circle, followed Jesus for a little over two and a half years. And he's writing this story account because he wants us as the readers some 2,000 years later to have a really clear picture of what it means to live a beautiful life following Jesus. Like he literally writes that he wrote the stories, the narratives of Jesus' life and following Jesus so that we would be familiar with the ways of Jesus, that we would be able to trust the ways of Jesus and that the ways of Jesus would begin to change how we live. And so I want to start to get to John 21 at the end. I just don't want to recall like the very first Sunday from last September, uh, we looked at a passage of scripture called John chapter one. It's the very first thing that John writes. I'm going to read it. It was written in kind of a poetic form. And so we'll unpack some of the language here. But John chapter one says this. In the beginning was the word. This context here, the word, it's actually talking about Jesus. Okay, so he's using another name for Jesus. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he was with God in the beginning and all things were created through him. And apart from him, Not one thing was created that has ever been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness could not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. John was not the light, but he came to testify about it. 
the true light that gives light to everyone came into the world, is coming into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and to his own people, and they didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we observed his glory and the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John writes this kind of poetic language, and and the John, the writer of this book, is not the John referenced here. It's John the Baptist who they're referencing here. But he writes this poetic story that actually goes back to Genesis chapter 1, like in the beginning. And he's reminding the reader here that everything that has ever happened was part of God's story. And the beautiful, like, what a beautiful life is, is actually defined by Jesus' actions that he's about to write in this book. That Jesus has always been in the world. He's always created. He was God. He is God. Was there in the beginning. That everything that was ever made was made because Jesus spoke it into action. And then he came. He actually lived as a man. And it the people that should have accepted him and been like, man, this is beautiful. And you are, you are amazing. You're the creator. You're powerful. Get like, we want to follow you. Those were the actual people who rejected him. And so he's recounting that Jesus came and lived among us so that we could actually experience beauty, not just in an afterlife, but right now. And so this morning, I think the very first question we want to ask ourselves is how big is our definition of beauty? How big is our definition of beauty? Um, I have three kids. Um, they're nine, seven, uh, nine, eight, and seven. And so uh, when, when I tell a joke, like it immediately gets thrown into a category as a, as a dad joke, right? So like I am quintessential dad joke space, all right? And so I have been working on three. I'd like to get your feedback on them, all right? Um, how do you find a room with only beautiful people? You turn off the lights. Ah, uh, a couple, couple of dads laughed at that one. They're going to use it later. Trust me. Second one, beauty may be in the eye of the beholder, but apparently I need glasses. A couple of chuckles. Um, this, all right, so this is the last, like, this is only, I got to go back to the drawing board if this one doesn't work. Uh, when does beauty expire? When your phone goes tick tock. Uh, only the dads got that. Oh, it's all right. We'll keep working on that. Here's the deal. Bad dad jokes are obvious. Like, just by the laughter I got in the room. Like, they're obvious. But living a beautiful life in a jacked up world doesn't feel as obvious and as easy as recognizing a bad joke. And so what we we begin to think about when we look at John chapter 1 and we, and we think about how big is our definition of beauty. Beauty is something we all long for and desire for our life. No one woke up today going, man, I hope today's a train wreck. Like, no one thought that. No one thought, man, I hope that I'm single until I'm 40 and that, like, man, Mr. Wonderful is going to be crazy and it's like I'm going to revert back 20 years. No one signed up for, like, hey, I hope my kids just go ballistic on me every single day of my life. 
right? We all long for beauty, and yet what often filtrates our minds is the brokenness of our own life, how much we mess things up, and how awful the things are around us. And so what we end up doing, because beauty seems unattainable, is we actually settle for a lesser beauty. In fact, like we, we settle for the dad joke version of beauty instead of enjoying the real thing. And the way that we do that is in two forms. Culturally speaking, because beauty seems so far out there, we actually try to redefine beauty into lesser terms. And so we think about like the reason that we uh, begin to redefine beauty in lesser terms is because if I can control the the definition and the outcome of beauty, there's a possibility I get to experience it. And so the reason that we control and try to redefine the, 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 the definition of beauty is because either one, I'm hurt and I need to numb the pain of it. Or secondly, there's something I want and it's so unobtainable that I'm actually going to lower the bar of what is truly beautiful and I'm going to manipulate and control circumstances so that that can be true in my life. When we think about the cultural narratives... Like, in our world right now, we go, hey, you define beauty for whatever is good for you because if I give you your permission to do that, I get the same permission. And so in doing so, what we have actually created is a lower level of beauty that's not beauty at all. It's just makeup on whatever is going on in our life. And what what John is writing here. And the reason he starts with in the beginning, like, was the word, was like, let's, let's get our eyes back off of, like, true beauty. Everything that was ever made, everything that is good in the world was sourced in a single person. And anything less than that, that we would settle our life on anything other definition or any other aspect of life is actually settling for a weaker, lesser version of beauty. In the, in the church, often what we do is we, we baptize our desire to control in, in like spiritual terms. And like we, we want to control like to make sure that we, we get uh, to have everything that we want with our time and our relationships, the way that we use our money. And we actually limit the size of our beauty because we're afraid to admit that our life actually isn't beautiful. And often our lives feel out of control. So we manipulate the people around us to make us feel a little bit better in a moment. And the reason we dive into that is let's, let's just call the playing field where it's at. Like, we as, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, there's something so much greater. In John 21, John chapter 21, we're going to unpack that, but we have to set the fact that the measure of beauty in our life is determined by who defines it and who is responsible for it. If I define what beauty is, then I am responsible for it. If Jesus holds the definition of beauty for my life, then he is actually responsible and makes available a beautiful experience in every vertical and horizontal of my life. So the, the question we asked this morning is, how big is our definition of beauty? And can we trust 
that God is the source of all beauty and all life and everything that is good. And I don't have to control the brokenness of my life. I don't have to manipulate the world around me so that I can numb the pain of how someone else has hurt me by controlling what beauty is. The second thing that we that we'll look at this morning is not just how big is our definition of beauty, but the baggage that blinds us to true beauty. Um, I, I, used to, I used to live in Orlando, Florida. Um, Orlando's kind of a, a mess right now, but from a tourism city, like nearly 100 million people a year from around the world travel to Orlando. There's one primary destination they go, it's, it's Disney, right? Any like Disney lovers in the world? Sam, not a Disney person? Uh, I can take it or leave it. Um, Sam's more of a beach guy, just right there. But Disney, uh, one day you'll have kids. You'll take your, your kids. They'll be wonderful and miserable at the same time. And so, like, Disney. So Disney World, we used to fly, I used to fly a good bit, and it was really fascinating on the rhythms. When I would fly out of Orlando, um, people would be going home from Disney. And when I'd fly into Orlando, people would be traveling to take their kids to Disney. And so I would typically be on a flight, flying back home from an event or, or some city, and you'd have all these parents who are just giddy, excited, like they all have their matching cute Disney t-shirts on. Like, you know, if you're a mom, you know what I'm talking about, or grandmother, like everybody in the family has to have a matching t-shirt with a name on it, and everybody's excited. And then when, a few days later, I would be flying out of Orlando, which means everybody's going home on vacation. And so you see, typically, it's, it's verbatim, every flight, you have dad who doesn't just have the luggage, but now has all the gifts that he's carrying, and just looks like he's angry at the world. Mom's snapping at the kids, the kids are tired, they're dropping their snacks everywhere, and everybody just sort of like, hates life. And oftentimes, in our journey, like, the baggage we collect every single day and every single week keeps us from seeing the beauty that God has created for us and designed us for. And in this passage of Scripture, where we're going to get to John 21. John 21 is actually a conversation between Peter and Jesus. And to understand the power of that conversation, you actually have to go back at like a month before and understand Peter's life. Understand in John 20, when we get to John 21 in that conversation, that the, the, the prequel to that is this idea that Peter, who like John, was one of Jesus' closest disciples, like we'll, we'll walk through his story. But in John chapter 13, Peter's having an argument with the other disciples, and he's trying to decide who is like the most powerful. Like if you go read your subtext in scripture, just write down John 13, like the disciples are arguing who is going to be the greatest. In John 14, Jesus goes, hey, look, I'm going to leave and I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and you're going to walk in power. In John 18, all right, so this is like John 18 is right before Jesus is arrested and crucified. Peter is in this garden praying, supposedly praying with Jesus. He keeps falling asleep, but he, he's praying with Jesus. And these armed guards kind of rush into the garden and they're ready to arrest Jesus. And you have to think about this, right? Peter has watched Jesus, like, bring people back from the dead, heal the blind. Like, he's actually avoided being arrested a couple times, escaped. Like, Jesus is fully in charge and in control. 
Peter, though, in this moment, these armed guards rush into the garden. Peter pulls out his sword, like redneck Bowie knife, and he starts like swinging at it and cuts a guy's ear off. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, hey, look, put your knife away. He picks up the man's ear and puts it back on. So Jesus goes away. He's arrested. Peter follows at a distance, like close enough to like know what's going on and far enough away that he, he can't get in trouble. And Peter finds himself like in this courtyard around a fire. And in this fire, one person comes up to Peter and goes, hey, weren't you with Jesus? And Peter goes, no, no, that wasn't me, man. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't with Jesus. This is now getting into Luke chapter 22. And then a second person, actually a servant girl, comes and asks Peter, hey, weren't you with him? Weren't you with Jesus? And Peter goes, no, no, I wasn't, that wasn't me. I've never been with him. I don't know him. And then finally a third person comes. And they're like, hey, I know you were with him. You're a Galilean. And he's like, no, I wasn't with Jesus. And at that moment, there was a, a sign. Jesus actually told Peter that he was going to do this, that he was going to deny him three times. And he said, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. And as soon as Peter denies Jesus a third time, the rooster crows. And it says that Peter, in Luke chapter 22, Peter gets up from the fire and he just walks out weeping bitterly. Like, he had just denied his Savior. Like, he, this is the guy that had walked on water with him. Like, and he just denied him, and he walks out weeping bitterly. I think there's a big thing when we start to look at the baggage that often blinds us. When we talk about our church culture, like let's, let's just talk about American church culture. Typically, our definition of following Jesus is we'll follow Jesus as long as there's some sense of powerful identity. There's enough money to like be in the bank account and go to Disney World or the beach. And that all of my relationships are good. That I'm liked. Like, that's typically, we go... Jesus, if the beautiful life, how I want to define it is, I have a sense of like powerful identity. I have money and I don't have to be a millionaire or billionaire, but I got money and I'm liked. And Jesus, I'll follow you as long as I get those three things. The problem with that is that Jesus didn't come to give powerful rich or to be liked. He came to serve, give, and to make peace. And if we live a beautiful life, then the, the way that we live should reflect the life of Jesus and that we serve, we give, and we make peace. Often our hearts are on fire to follow Jesus until our definition of what a beautiful life is doesn't line up. Personally, in Luke chapter 22, Peter lets his Savior down. Like, 
He feels that. He didn't let Jesus down, but he feels like he has let Jesus down. He thought in the garden when those soldiers had come to arrest Jesus that there was going to be a strong uprising. They were about to fight everybody off. It didn't go that way. Jesus humbly surrenders and walks out. He thought that he was going to have a sense of power, that things were going to go well. And that's not the way that it worked. Our tendency when things don't go the way that it, we'd like is that we become self-reliant and try to figure things out on our own. And the more self-reliant and self-sufficient we come, like we laugh at Peter, but on a daily basis, we pull out whatever our bowie knife is, like our, our relational savviness, our work, whatever we cling to as our like superpower, we pull it out and we try to fight for ourselves and defend ourselves. And in that moment, the more self-reliant and self-sufficient we come, the deeper the hole is we dig for ourselves, and the uglier life gets because we actually aren't, like we don't have the power to define a beautiful life and to create a beautiful life for ourselves. So the more that we try to, the more we mess things up. Like, you might have been there like in a relationship. Like the harder you try, the more you mess it up. Like that, you do have to try in a relationship. Like that caveat. I, I was looking at you. I, we've, we've had those conversations, like, right? Not that you don't try. We just, we've had that conversation. You work really hard. I feel like I just put you in, like in your bride, just sat down. So like you work really hard. But the fact is, that if it's in my own strength, I will screw it up. And here we see that Peter screwed it up. It's not just that he screwed it up. If we follow Jesus as long as, and, and try, say we follow Jesus, but continue to be self-reliant in how we love our spouse, that we do school, that we pursue work, it's exhausting. And Peter walks out of this scene right here, weeping, exhausted, carrying the baggage of what he thinks is he's let his Savior down. All right, so let's get to John chapter 21. In John chapter 21, Jesus has like died, resurrected, and uh, he's appeared back to the disciples. All right, so this is like the, 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 he's been in the upper room, all these things, and he's kind of traveling around showing people. So Peter takes six of the other disciples, and they go fishing again. All right, this is the first part, John chapter 21, verse 2. Like, they go out fishing. That was Peter's trade. That's what he did. That's how he made money, provided for his family. So they go fishing. They fish all night. They catch nothing. And then some random dude on the beach hollers out and said, hey, did y'all catch anything? They're like, no, we haven't caught anything. He goes, hey, throw your net down on the right side and haul in everything. So they like throw their nets down and they catch like 153 fish like in a single moment. Throw the net, pull it in. So John, the writer of this book, uh, looks at Peter and goes, it's the master. Like it's Jesus. There's no way that we just threw our nets down on the side and catch 153 fish. We've cut, we've we fished all night, caught nothing. So Peter grabs his, his uh, fishing cloak, because I, I don't know if he fished in the buff, his tights, whatever he did, but he grabs his fishing cloak, and he, he swims to the shore. 
He gets there, and Jesus on the seashore has already prepared a fire and a breakfast. And in this moment, we get to see how beauty begins to reblossom in Peter's life. In this moment, I just need you to see how Jesus shows up to Peter. This, Peter and Jesus have not had a one-on-one interaction that we know of since he's denied him in the, in the courtyard. But Jesus recreates every part of Peter's life in this one scene. In John chapter 4, uh, Peter is not following Jesus. His name is Simon. His mother-in-law dies. And Jesus goes and brings her back to life. In John chapter 5, so just a few days later, uh, Peter is out fishing again. He fished all night, caught nothing. Jesus tells them to throw their net on the other side, and they catch a whole string of fish that almost sinks the boat. And then Jesus looks at Peter and goes, hey, look, from now on, you're not going to catch fish. You're going fi- to catch men. He gives him a new identity, like a new purpose. And then we, we look at uh, Matthew chapter 16, and Jesus asks his disciples, hey, who do the disciples say, or who do you say that I am? And Peter, like, yells out in this bold voice, you're the Messiah. Like, you're the Savior of the world. And Jesus looks back at Peter. At this point, his name is Simon. And he goes, Peter, your name, Petra, means rock. On this confession, I'm going to build my church. And so Jesus at this moment has given Peter a new purpose, a new name, a new identity. He's walked on water with Jesus, and he comes to this breakfast. The only other time there's a fire pit in all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is when Peter denies Jesus. So what Jesus has just redone is he has reminded Peter of his purpose for living, his name, And the fact that he goes, you know what, Peter, we're not going to sweep under the rug that you denied me three times. I'm just going to step into the mess with you. And I've recreated this scene because the last time you were at a fire pit, you actually didn't want to claim to be a follower of me. You actually denied me. So let's step into this baggage. And he has this conversation in John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. He said to them, you know that I love you. It's really interesting. It's really important kind of the story. Jesus used the word agape. He goes, "Uh, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Agape is this like beautiful, holistic love. Peter's response is, yes, Lord. I phileo you. It's a brotherly love. It's where we get the the name from the city of Philadelphia. And so he asked him, uh, he he said to him, you know that I love you, then feed my lambs. He told him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you, then shepherd my sheep. He told him, uh, and then he asked him a third time, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? This is the third time Jesus has asked Peter. And at this time, he changes the word agape to phileo. So he's no longer asking Peter, do you phileo me? He's asking, do you, or do you agape me? He's saying, do you phileo me? Jesus, uh, 
He said, then you know everything, Peter responded. You know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk where you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie, tie you and carry you where you do not want to go. And he said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would die to glorify God. And after saying this, he told him, follow me. Um, so what, what Jesus has done here is that he's like, he's recreated a scene basically for Peter's life of following Jesus. And he pulls him aside and he asks him three times, do you love me? Now, now here's, here's the beautiful thing. Remember, Jesus came in the world, we read in John chapter one, to like make us sons and daughters, to invite us into his family. He asked him three times, not because he needed to like, okay, Peter, you denied me three times, so like you need to confirm your love for me three times. No, he asked him three times because Peter needs to hear himself say, I love you, Jesus. Jesus doesn't need that to wipe away and check all the boxes and know, okay, one for one, tit for tat. No, he goes, you know what, Peter? I want you to hear yourself say that you love me, that you affirm the, the person and the beautiful, the creator, the powerful king that you followed. Like, I want you to affirm to yourself that you love me. But the second thing that's really interesting here is like, remember, Peter was like the inner circle of Jesus. He denies him three times. It's this broken moment. And the first two times, Jesus asked Peter, he goes, do you agape me? Which would have been a holistic, a higher love, a more perfect love. Peter's response is, I phileo you. Like a brother. Jesus, the third time, changes the word here. And he doesn't say, do you agape me? He goes, I phileo you. Do you phileo me? And the picture that Jesus is creating here for all of us, like John chapter 21 is, we are going to continually, because we're broken people, we will continually screw this thing up. Like perfection is unattainable apart from Jesus' return. But when we mess this thing up, Jesus does not need us to clean it up so that he will love us again. He doesn't need us to like, okay, I've messed this thing up, so like maybe if I hide it enough, it will go away. Or Jesus doesn't need us to go like, okay, I keep messing people up. I've messed this relationship up. I keep messing work up. He doesn't need us to go, okay, when I get this to like, we're now at a level two. When I get this to a level six, it'll be good enough for Jesus. No, Jesus creates the picture that he actually steps down to our level and goes, hey, look, I don't need you to muscle up something that you don't have. I just need you to show up and I'll come down to you. He's actually re-showing the picture of John chapter 1 where Jesus leaves heaven and comes down as a man and walks among us. Like, he lived in a perfect, beautiful heaven. And he comes as a man to, like, experience the, the pain and the hurt of this world. And he's reminding Peter that he steps down to our level at every moment that we surrender and go, Jesus, I can't and I need you. So the beautiful life that we get to this peace, it's not in us like, okay, if this is how life looks and I clean it up and I, I'm a little bit better 
coworker, and I'm a little bit better boyfriend or girlfriend, and I'm a little bit better this, that like I get to experience more beauty. The secret to the beauty, the beautiful life is just going, I've messed this thing up and I can't clean it up. I need you to come rescue me. And when that rescue, like the, the whole narrative from, from the moment that Jesus, like we say, yes, I'm going to trust Jesus as Savior. If you're a follower of Jesus, from that moment to every single day till he returns or you die and you meet with him in heaven. Is replaying this narrative on an hourly basis of, God, I can't. Like, I'm going to mess this up if you don't show up. Like I, like, I can't manage the pressure and the stress. And I can't get up to your standard. And we have, a, like, this is what beauty is. That the creator of the world who created everything good and right and perfect, we, we messed it up. Like, humanity messes it up, continues to mess it up that he would actually come down to our level and offer a rescue free of charge. Like he doesn't ask us to clean it up. But he does ask, he goes, hey, look, it takes a surrender to go, I can't do this. I'm messed up. But you can and I will follow you or follow your words. We talk following Jesus, following his word, following his ways. Wherever you tell me to go is where I'm going to go. Whatever you tell me to do, that's what I'm going to do. And I can't do it on my own. I need you to like, Holy Spirit, give me the power and authority to step into obedience. But there's no way to enjoy a beautiful life in a broken world until we come to the place where we sit and go, I admit how bad I am and I've messed this up. And I know how good and loving you are. And I'm willing to follow you unconditionally. And that, that actually means we stop trying to clean up and hide the mistake from 10 years ago, the mistake from last night, we actually just usher in and go, God, this is who I am, and I'm really jacked up. And the beautiful thing is he's like, he's shown from the beginning of time that stepping into your messed up space is actually part of how he demonstrates his power and beauty, not just to you, but to the world. Like plan A was for us to live in a good and perfect world. It fell apart but that didn't mess up God. Didn't change him. It just meant that he got to demonstrate his rescue to us. The final thing that we want to look at this morning is what does it mean to begin to live in beauty? The last things that Peter, that Jesus says to Peter is, is follow me. It's really interesting. He's actually telling Peter that he's going to die on a, like he's going to be crucified. That's how he's going to die. And, and Peter goes, well, hey, what about those guys over there? Like, how are they going to die? And uh, still Peter's wrestling out his faith, right? Like, still not fully on board. He's wrestling. And, and Jesus goes, hey, you don't worry about them. You follow me. And from everything that we have here in John chapter 21, 
Peter gets up and he follows his word, Jesus' words, and his ways. Just a few days later, Jesus would actually ascend into heaven and he would tell his disciples to hang out, that he was going to send the Holy Spirit. So Jesus the man went up. God the Holy Spirit came down to live inside the hearts of his followers. In Acts chapter 2, Peter stands on a, 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 the steps and he begins to preach, which is not typically a Peter thing. Like he was loudmouth and talked a lot, but he begins to preach. And thousands of people begin to put their faith in Jesus. And then they go to their homes and they begin to like tell other people about this, this God who came down, died on a cross to save and rescue humanity from their own brokenness. And like the good news of Jesus begins to spread all over the world. Like to the point that it spread to San Antonio, Texas, and you're here. Like the birth of the church started right there. And it's this idea, it's this truth that our surrender to Jesus always leads us to joyful service where we get to experience his enormous and extraordinary power. Like full surrender always leads to joyful service. Not a, man, I got to be on the setup and teardown team. Or like not, I'm keeping the babies today. But like the fact of like God has called me into some broken and messy places. And because I'm following him and I'm surrendering to him, then guess what? When I step into my workplace tomorrow, I have authority and I have power and I have the reality of grace and truth that I'm jacked up, but I follow a good God who will save and redeem and fix any situation that I bring to him. Like, maybe not when I want it and not how I want it, but, but he is redeeming and restoring all things. So I can step into those messy spaces at home and with my kids and with my boyfriend, my girlfriend at work, my parents. And I can joyfully serve the king because I know that. As I surrender to him and I follow him, he only can do things that are good, right, and perfect. He can't mess things up. Like, you get that? Like, Jesus can't mess things up. He only makes them good. As we wrap up our, our time today and just what it means to live a beautiful life in a broken world, um, I'll share a story. On, on February 1st, 2003, I remember where I was. I was in the, my driveway playing basketball. Um, and I heard, I was in, actually in South Georgia, and so I heard an explosion. Um, you, if you lived in Texas or Louisiana, you, you probably remember this. Like, space shuttle coming back into entry exploded on entry and spread all across Texas and Louisiana. Like, seven astronauts died. Major the last last explosion outside of uh, whatever Elon Musk just may have blew up, may not have blown up. Who knows if he did that intentionally? But like this this space here, 2003, it, it explodes. Seven people die. Um, I got to I got to know a guy by the name of David King. David was actually in charge of NASA in Huntsville, Alabama, where they train all the astronauts um, to do a lot of the work, space camp. And so David gets a call the moment that happens, and they said, hey. Uh, we need you to fly to Houston 
And uh, when you're, while you're on the plane, we'll brief you on everything that's going on. David gets to Houston, they brief him, and his job was to literally put a team together that collected all of the pieces from that shuttle, including the lives of the astronauts, like what was left. And so as they stretched across some 240 square miles, David puts this team together in a short amount of time. Typically when something like that happens, they, they recover less than 10% of anything. But David picked up all the pieces and they were actually able to, to get over 40% of the shuttle and parts of like the astronauts, the families and like all those things. And he started talking about what it means to pick up the pieces. And he goes, and it was messy. It was, it was awful. He goes, our, our deal is always to send astronauts to space and to bring them back home safely. And we didn't, we didn't do that. And so David, as he was sharing with me, goes, hey, you know, one of the things that it reminds me of is that even on our best efforts, we're not going to be able to pick up all the pieces. Like, I got awards from presidents. I got Hall of Fame type accolades for that work, and I couldn't pick up all the pieces. To go back down as one of the greatest rescues in history, and I couldn't pick up all the pieces. As we, we talk about what it means to live a beautiful life and that, that being defined in who Jesus is and has what he has done, the faster we get to that conclusion that you can't pick up all the pieces, the more beautiful your life becomes. The faster you get to the reality that things are, things are going to get messy, and you can't control those, but you follow a God who is fully in charge, the more you're able to take a deep breath and enjoy the messiness of knowing that God's working all things to his good, for the good of those who, who love him, follow him. And so I think there are probably two people, there are two camps here this morning. One, uh, you may be checking out like this this church thing, Jesus thing, man, we're, we're super glad you're here. You're not going to be able to build the life you want. You can try really hard. I mean, I, I tried really hard at my 20s. Really, really hard. To build the life that I wanted. Control it. Manipulate the circumstances. Like, strategically place chess. and still miss the beauty that Jesus was already for me and didn't need me to step up and control the world for him. But if you're in this camp and you're not following Jesus, then like your world's jacked up. And, and like, if I can just be honest, like you're not all the brokenness in the world is your fault, but the brokenness in your life is like, man, you, you have guilt in that. 
And the very first thing that Jesus did was to say, hey, you know what? I'll come and I'll take away the guilt and all the mess up brokenness in your life that you've caused and created. And I'll offer you not just beautiful life now, but I'll offer you eternity. Like, like this world will, will pass away. It'll burn up somehow, some way. It'll burn up. Your life's going to end. And he goes, you know what? I'll rescue you. And I don't need anything from you, but a full surrender is what I require of you. I don't need you to clean it up. Don't need you to pick up the pieces. I just need you to surrender and just say, I'm jacked up and I need a savior. The second, the second camp are people like, man, you, uh, you could have your quiet time and be walking close to Jesus. And in a moment, in an instant, you go, I need to take charge of life. I need to control this relationship, this circumstance. And the moment you do, just, just understand you've stepped out of the beautiful life and stepped into the messy life and you're living by your own rules and your own definition and that's got a very limited source. And this morning, like, like we read God's word, we respond to it. Your call to action is like, are you willing to go, God, I'm messing this up and I, I don't know how to fix it. Or I'm, I'm trying to control this, and I know that's only going to lead to more pain, more trouble, more struggle. I need you to step in. Whatever, whatever the circumstance is, like, name it. Say, like, this is where I'm tempted to take out the sword and to do my own fighting. In just a moment, um, I'm actually, we're just going to, like, take a moment of prayer. Like we're just going to let everybody just kind of go, okay, Lord, where's the space that I am trying to control? And I need to like, just confess that I'm messing it up and I need you to step in. That same time, if you're in that first camp and you're like, hey, I don't know. Um, I'm trying really hard, but I don't want to live a jacked up life. Like I actually want to experience the beauty of a savior. Like here's the deal, like follow Jesus does not make everything perfect tomorrow. What does make perfect is that you can rest in the fact there's a perfect God working all things to your good. And so in just a second, I'm just going to write, hey, let's pray. Uh, Mindy and Ben are going to play. If that's you, like, man, I'm just going to hang out up here. You just come get me. Like, let's, let's step away from the brokenness and into beauty. Let's continue to surrender and admit there's a good God out there who's designed us for a beautiful life. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you meet us, speak to us. God, I pray that in these moments I'm going to shut up and that you would work in our hearts. Lord, that is as your people, followers of you, that we would see and repent and trust you. Lord, those who are, who are not followers of you, who haven't, who haven't made you Savior, confess just, Lord, that I'm, I've messed life up. And I don't want to live a jacked up life. I want to live life how it was intended. Follow a good God who forgives, who comes to my level who rescues, restores.
Why don't we take the next 90 seconds? Just carry a conversation with the Lord. If you want to follow Jesus, you, you can come grab me and grab somebody around you. And step in from brokenness into beauty. for listening. We hope that today's message resonated with you. It's our hope that you wouldn't be merely inspired, but that you would actually be transformed by something you heard today. At the Rim Church, we always ask two questions when processing God's word. What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? We encourage you to take a moment, reflect, and then to share with a friend or send us a message. We'd love to hear what God is teaching you and how we can help you take your next step in obedience. Until we meet again, we love you, church.